ask, maybe ask, let me ask it a different way. So if you look at some of the, the truly exceptional tech uh, CEOs, so uh, Bill Gates, uh, Larry Ellison, Mark Zuckerberg, I think even Steve Jobs could code a bit. I mean, they all kind of had a computing background. So how, how important is it for founders, tech founders, to be proficient in, in coding? So you just use me in the same sentence as all those guys? <laughs> yeah, you should awesome. take that, Marina. You get yeah. it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so I remember I saw Bill Gates speak, and Chris and Trina probably heard him speak um, uh, much more times than me, but I remember being at this conference and Bill Gates was speaking, and somebody asked him about this low-level uh, compiler issue, and he just went and talked about that. And then um, the next question was about the Asian economic crisis, which was a big deal at the time, and he went and dealt with that. So what I always found was um, technical people understand systems, and you can learn kind of general business, but it's very hard to go the other way. And so I've always found being a technical founder uh, holds me in really good stead. And when we went through and did our IPO, I mean, I didn't know anything about being a public company, but um, I think as a technical person, you look at the patterns, you know, even when we did the business before, uh, which was a trade sale, our... um, aftermail business, we saw the pattern that um, mid-sized US-listed software companies have to buy private companies. So then we um, built a business that we knew would be brought, and we sold that within 18 months of starting it. So it was very much the systems thinking, um, which you can extend to business. You know, you see patterns and you understand how things work. So I think that technical background is really important. Okay, so let's just touch, uh, follow up on that aftermail comment, because that was the mid-2000s. You knew you wanted to start an accounting firm. You knew it was going to be expensive, but you didn't have the money to do it. So you started a business in order to sell it so you could do the real game. Is that roughly what went through your head? Um, yeah, almost that. So um, so I always wanted to... I think when, when you've done software and you've worked in a, um, an accounting firm, you really want to build your own general ledger, and with any new bit of technology, whether it was Access or on the web, you kind of, you know, I'd certainly all, um, always thought about doing that. But um, I had seen this very clear pattern of R&D by acquisition, where um, you know the US companies had to go and buy private companies. And um, when I thought about, and also I was a point in my career where I made my first bit of money, but hadn't really made enough to stop and um, also had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, I think, about doing something which was truly global to prove that we could build technology as good as anyone else in the world. So um, I actually wrote an online accounting system myself at home when I think ASP.net version 2 came out. It felt really good, and I showed a few people, but I realised that um, it wasn't a quick build and flick. Um, You know, there was so much code to write, but also... Working with small business owners, I didn't feel right that you would, um, you know, build up a company and then sell the customer base. Whereas in the enterprise market, that's a far more normal pattern, and I didn't feel quite so guilty about it, to be honest. So, um, to another problem that always pissed me off, that that um, email was so broken. So we built a relational version of Exchange. Um, basically, took the email data out of the hierarchical Exchange store and put it into a relational database, which was our aftermail products. You could search email and reduce the size of the exchange store and all those good things. Um, and that did feel like very much it would um, uh, something we could build and sell quite quickly. So once we got to, I think we got to about two million of revenue, and we were at that uh, fork in the roads about whether we took a whole lot more money and built a long-term business 
or we would go and find uh, someone to buy us. Um, so I was kind of had the um, attention span of a three-year-old, and I think at that point, just getting the money was more important. So uh, we decided to sell the business, so we went to the Microsoft Tech Head Conference in Florida that year. We knew that our um, whoever would buy us would probably be there. Looked around, looked at all the stands, and there was like three, three tiers of stands. There was the big kind of mega sponsors, like Microsoft and you know those sort of companies at the front. Then there were the second tier ones, and then there was the, the stalls out the back where all of us small companies um, were displaying our stuff. Looked around, and Quest, that's it. Uh, totally fitted their their kind of model, and then um, you know made a um, made a pest of ourselves to find the right people that would come and see the technology, and then um, you know the next week I was in San Francisco and having having uh, lunch with some of the Quest guys, and the guy leans across the table and says, "Are you committed to remaining independent?" I'm like, "Whatever do you mean?" <laughs> and uh, and then you know we're on the path, and we sold that within 18 months of starting, and then we got. 15 million US in cash and 20 million of potential earnout, of which we got none of, which was a good, good <laughs> Okay, so you, you, you took some cash off the table, which is a great result for most founders. Like, uh, you know, top tip for startups is uh, there's nothing quite as liquid as shares in private companies, so if you can get cash off the table, take it. Um, and you knew at that point that you wanted to launch Zero. Is that and by this point, MYOB was in market and they had the tails high, and you know Quicken was around, and you were, as a small company in New Zealand, prepared to take them on. And you knew, so you knew at that point, even though you had nothing, that you wanted to compete with those guys. Is that right? Yeah. So even more so. So so I'd already built the online accounting engine, but realised that wasn't the right thing to build up quickly and sell. So we did aftermail, but as we were doing aftermail, we were a small business ourselves. So we had to go and use, you know, MYB, and you know, it took us two or three days to get it set up. And when I turned it on, my eyeballs started bleeding, and um, and the whole process was completely broken. And you saw this, um, the, all the innovation that was happening in consumer internet, and it just wasn't happening in the small business space. So we thought there was a great opportunity, and I think being a business owner and having to use the software, it just came clearer and clearer. So I was, um, I was on an earn out at Quest, so I couldn't start in the business straight away. But basically the day I got my check, um, you know, we started the Zero team and because uh, we had money. Uh, we had six months of doing real R&D, which was a luxury that I'd never had before. The money we put into um, Aftermail, I think it was probably 25 grand each, and that was basically not getting paid for a year. Yeah. Um, and you know we might have put in ten or fifteen grand of cash, maybe. So, and this was two thousand and six, is that right? Love what? Are you some kind of lawyer? Yeah, no, I've done my research. <laughs> but come on, yeah. what do you expect? This is like a professional organisation yeah, yeah. here. <laughs> round uh, so anyway, to, around about two thousand and six. So, um, but you then went on pretty much immediately to, to list. So I mean, you put in your own money. You did the six months of R and D, but you knew at that point it was going to be very expensive. And I think if you look back then at the, the venture capital uh, environment in New Zealand, it didn't exist. I mean, I think the biggest deal ever done was, what, one or two million? Yeah. Uh, so you're not going to fund it from VC. So was listing at that really crazy early stage the only way that you were going to get that money? Yeah, so the mess was really easy. We sold Aftermail with 23 staff. And when I started planning out zero, we needed sort of 50 from day one. So because we were building a platform, um, it wasn't you know just an enterprise business where... 
you know, the heroics of the founder would get your first few deals. We had to, had to build, you know, a scalable sales model. So say we had, you know, even just five developers, you needed five testers, you know, you needed some salespeople, and quickly added up to about 50 staff. So 50 staffs, half a million a month. And this is in the context of, you know, we had less than 100 to start all of Aftermail, and, and we were putting a business plan together that was 500 grand a month. So <coughs> over three years, call that 15 million. So yeah, there wasn't any big VC, VC deals that had been done in that part of the world. Um, but I just sold Aftermail, and also I was on the board of Trade Me, which we sold to Fairfax for 600 million Australian. Um, and my claim to fame there is the closest guy to the deal that got no cash. Um, <laughs> but um, at least all my sort of friends had. And uh, and because and I was sorry, you showed them. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I mean, this, the whole thing was uh, it was uh, I was in competition with Sam Morgan he was about 10 years younger than me and I was like he can't win he's too young so, <laughs> so I had to go again um, and it was hard actually because he ended up coming on our board and I, I remember having a conversation how can I beat you when you're in but it, it was worthwhile getting him in anyway um, so, uh, so we needed 15 million we probably could have raised 15 million on the US West Coast so we had quite a bit of success and um, I think a good entrepreneurial brand developing but um, when I say we I don't mean the royal we I mean the team you know, the sort of close team. Um, so I was, I made sure, because I knew there was a, a much bigger play, that I was seen to have done these deals because I knew that I'd be asking for money at some point. So um, it was interesting with Aftermath, there was a few, a few of us, I was certainly the primary one, but there were some other people, but they didn't really um, step up to get the points and I wasn't holding them back. I was like, come on, guys, go. But everyone was like, oh, I've earned enough, it's fine, I'm going to you know, go and do something else. And so... Um, Aftermail gave credentials to go and do zero. Um, so we probably could have raised money on the US West Coast, but at 20, you know, asking for 15 million, we maybe would have got a valuation of 25, and I knew the business would end up being sold quite quickly. Um, and there was a, a vodka brand called 42 Below that had told a big story on the New Zealand Stock Exchange, and uh, basically they'd been going for about 18 months, got brought out by uh, Bacardi, and um, the shareholders did, had, a, had an okay return on that. So the playbook of telling a story, raising the money to build the story had been done. So right at that period of time, uh, we, we could do the same thing. So we followed that playbook, and um, I think that's really important. We, there wasn't anyone else had really done this in software, but we'd seen in um, uh, the booze space this, this thing play out, so we applied that. And then it's neat. We've seen other companies follow us. So as we've learnt a lot more, now I think we've had about five tech listings in the New Zealand Stock Exchange. Uh, does, is it easier to list in New Zealand than in Australia? Because you've done both now. Um, yeah, so once you've listed in Australia, you can list in... A, once you've listed in New Zealand, you can just co-list in Australia. Right. So it's a very easy on-ramp. But is the, is the process... And the reason I ask, I mean, I, I, I sat in, in Sydney with Neil Helm from... Oz Forex, who listed that business uh, what, 20, late 2013 or 2014, um, and he basically said it took him a year, almost entirely full time, to to get the company ready for listing, and that was a company that was turning over 100 million in an extraordinary performance. You know, yeah, so, you so that was a fatal mistake. You should have done it right at the beginning, right. but there was nothing to do because so we were just a glint in the eye and um, just a business plan, really. So, so ironically, it was easier for us to list because we were just backing our reputations. There was no past performance. There was no weird shareholder loans or anything to sort out. We were a clean story, and that's what we, um, you know, that's what we listed. We basically listed on the PowerPoint. But that's not common. 
I mean, we certainly don't see that much in, in, in Australia. I mean, there's a few backdoor listings, and in fact, more common backdoor listings, but to see a front door listing of a crazy early stage business like this in Australia just is unheard of. Just just because other people can't do it, you shouldn't punish me. No, I'm not punishing, I'm just. <laughs> I mean, I think I it's. Mean, just, it, yeah. So no, no, it was just the right time. So we'd had um, you know two good wins after Mail and Trade Me. We'd seen 42 Below do its thing. Um, you know, this is actually what public markets should be: people investing in risk to to build businesses, getting capital in to build businesses. This is what the markets were established for, and that's one of the good things we've done. We've actually kind of reset, I think, certainly for technology, this new way of doing things. You don't have to do a VC round, then a you know, then some um, private equity or um, hedge funds, and then do an IPO. In fact, we flipped it around. We did our IPO first, then added um, hedge funds, and we've just added Excel as a VC. So we've thought we'd just do it backwards. Why has that not happened since? Are you so unique that no one else has been able to do it, or, or what? I think we may be, because um, we're old. Like, you know, a lot of us are in our 40s, so you know, it's not our first rodeo. We've done a few things before, and we've got a track record. You know, the best way to raise money is to not need it, right? So, um, but what we have seen is other early-stage technology companies following uh, what we're doing. I haven't seen anyone completely do it off a business plan, but um, you know uh, we've seen people do it with sort of three to five million of revs. Okay, so I mean, let, let, let me maybe morph into a more general question about the the, the startup ecosystem. Uh, and you can touch in New Zealand because that's where you're from, but you're also active in in Australia. So, in the last ten years since you've been actively involved, what are your observations about the ecosystem? And you can answer that in whatever observations you'd like. Um, there's no substitute for experience and how, how that is useful is it doesn't matter what you do for your first um, thing so you always hear the entrepreneurial stories about the people that smack it out of the park on their first deal but that's very very rare and much more and, and often that's just luck and great timing and you know just a whole lot of things kind of line up and it would have to be um, from a maths perspective um, like you couldn't do Facebook now right so if Mark Zuckerberg was five years older Facebook wouldn't have happened, or some other version would have already happened. Um, but he's, you know, he's clearly very clever because he's continued to create value uh, even more so over the last two years. So um, a much more repeatable process is doing a series of businesses, and with each one you gain more experience, get more of your own networks. There's always bigger ideas if you've um, raised money had investment and given investors back a good return, they're going to come in again. You have more opportunity to own more of it and a right to own more of it because you've got your own money you can put in. So I think treating entrepreneurship as a series of baby steps is the way to think about it. And uh, a lot of people get hung up on their business being them. I think one of the good things about us IPOing early is I was never working in the business, it was always on the business. So while the guys were doing the R&D and building the you know, first minimum viable product from zero, you know, I was out doing the IPO and sort of selling the story. So it meant that I was um, uh, forced to not be deeply involved um, you know, with the hardcore dev side. Um, and I think that's been the secret. Then you just hire great people like Chris and Trent and uh, Marina to, to drive the business. So that was another advantage, I think, of, of going early. And then, um, you know, I think entrepreneurs should think about their businesses as sort of children. You want to get them to a point where they can run on their own. And if they are, then you can sell them or you can gas them up or put a manager in it or um, make it bigger. Um, but 
but a business should stand on its own. Yeah, that's awesome, and that shouldn't dr- uh, fall over when you when you leave. Okay, so I mean, let's continue on that um, zero success theme because um, it's always been spectacularly successful. We've touched on the funding side. Uh, but just because you've got a large dollop of money or access to a large dollop of money does not guarantee success. Um, so just on the cultural piece, I mean, the culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think that's what uh, Peter Drucker said. So uh, how important is culture uh, for you within zero, question one? And question two, are staff more important than customers? Um, so um, sort of three bits there. First one you didn't ask, but I'll answer, uh, answer okay. anyway. So, so, um, so cash is really important. We won when we did our IPO, which gave us a pathway to cash. So our first IPO was $15 million, and then we've used strategic placements to bring in strategic investors and march value up. So we've raised over $400 million total, which is nuts. You know, if we had a thought that we would have raised a million dollars for a software company, and we've raised four hundred. We have a quarter of a billion of cash in the bank. So cash is um, a massive uh, thing because... Yeah, I mean, it's cash 22. You can't get the cash without the performance, and you can't get the performance without the cash. Yeah, but, but um, making sure that our business has tons of cash has been a key part of our strategy. And even though the market, and, and especially like in a downturn, so we strategically raised much more money than we would need because we saw the markets were going to go into turmoil. So it's now harder for anyone else to get funded. Um, anyone who um, has been funded is, is very funny, difficult to get follow-up rounds. I may have to do down rounds. I've seen quite a lot of that at the moment. And, um, you know, there's a whole lot of new competitors aren't there and can't get as, as much um, um, oxygen. So, so strategy and culture are all good, but having a shit ton of cash <laughs> is um, really important for doing these big things. So we're fine. We've taken all the risk yeah. off our business because we have enough cash to get to break even. Uh, we can choose to swim to the safety of the side of the pool anytime, anytime uh, we want, but at the moment it makes sense to grow. So then uh, strategy, well, because um, we're experienced and been around for a while and we've got great people in the business, we have a very clear strategy. And I think probably the issue is... is um, good thing about SaaS is you release software so frequently you just get this positive feedback cycles which gives you confidence in your own judgement and you see things going on and think, hey, that's how it's going to play out. So we don't do anything we probably wouldn't you know, have a high level of confidence is going to be successful. I mean, we get a few little things wrong, but generally what we're doing, we're very confident in because um, the strategy isn't something we really agonise over. We just intuitively know it because we've been around for so long. We've seen so many things happen. So there's no substitute for experience. And that's kind of interesting. I find when I go to Silicon Valley and you see all the young 30-somethings, you know, and I've had twice the working career of them. So we don't meet anyone that blows us away. We meet smart, interesting people. But... Um, you know, we don't feel like you know we're from New Zealand. We're from the farm. You know, it's you know we just had great meetings. Um, but, but where does strategy stop and culture begin? Well, then then you, that, that's it's all the same. So laying on top of good strategy, then you absolutely drive culture. And what what's been interesting for us is we've you know we doubled staff in the last eighteen months. I think we're over. It must almost be thirteen hundred people now. So we, you know, half of all zeros are new in the last year. Yet our culture. Um, external testing of culture and employee sat and all those good things is is pretty much off the charts. Okay, um, so, but how do you do that? Because well, that's hard. That. Let me tell you. All right. <laughs> so, um, so, so one thing is making the strategy really clear, and that's something I learned this year, um, uh, and we've been really pushing through the business. So as we've got bigger, we've had to move from 
you know, a little New Zealand startup to now a truly global company. So if someone says we're a New Zealand company, I cringe because we've got great Australians in the business, great Americans, great UK people in the business. So I hate talking about us as a New Zealand company. We're a New Zealand started company, but we're actually a global company now, this sort of new generation of truly global companies. Um, so, so all that's going on. And then um, if you want uh, to you know, keep scaling, keep the innovation going, you've got to push that out to the teams, push it out to the edge, and that's about everyone understanding the strategy. So we've had a really big focus this year on getting our strategy documented and sharing it to the team, and then having all the teams um, thinking about how they contribute to it, and if you can empower them and all that, that's, um, you know, that's, a, that's a key part of it, and then they have the confidence to make decisions because they know what, know what you're trying to do. So we're in that journey, I wouldn't say we're perfect at it, but that's really working. What we did really get right though is the values, which is I think our key thing for culture. So we set our values very clearly. Um, we don't change it very often because values tend to not change. But as we got to a certain size, we did do um, we did tweak a few to get them right for our um, as we were scaling. And we reference our values every day. So we um, we use Yammer as our sort of virtual water cooler, and I'd be one of the biggest posters. And we're always referencing the values into the conversation. Um, and how, and how many was, values are there? Uh, five. Okay. You know, ask what they are. Okay, here's a test. Oh. Yeah. What yeah. are they? Um, uh, so beautiful, and that's about beautiful experiences. Also captures persona-based marketing, which we really believe in, which is faces, people, authenticity, which suits the small business market. Um, um, especially that um, comes very naturally to us. I'm a challenger, so that's about. Uh, challenging the way things are done, but also being a bit cheeky in the market. So we absolutely am attached to the um, incumbents and call them out. Um, but also, you know, the, the whole aspect of you know doing things differently, which is really good. Uh, being human is a really important one for us. Um, that's uh, you know we always think about would you you know how do we want people to to, to, to feel what would be the human way to do things? That's an important one. Um, Marina. Ownership and champion, yeah. Uh, ownership's a really big one. That's one we tweaked up. As we got bigger, there was always someone else's job. So ownership was a one that we tweaked up and um, really happy with that one. That um, is one of our key values. And, you know, when new starters come in, it's your business. Everyone's responsible for culture. If people see things that are inconsistent with the culture, call it out very quickly. And, um, and champion is the advocacy voice yeah. so we talk about the cloud industry talk about startups talk about Australia and New Zealand um, you know we, we are champions of small business yeah. and uh, those have served us well okay so the last question I had on, on that little topic was are staff more important than customers yes yes is there a balance is it like 60-40 or 70-30 or well I mean it's so obvious you have to um, you have to have harmonious staff that are empowered and believe in the mission and, uh, you know, bleeding cyan, um, you know, because everything comes from them. Everything we do, every experience is made from them. So getting customers happy and right and dealing with, you know, poor performers or people that don't fit the culture is primary. And then the whole company focuses on the customer. But, um, you know, people sort of ask who, who really influences you. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a really interesting influence because he's doing hard big, exciting things, 
that a lot of people say Steve Jobs, but I'm not that excited about Steve Jobs. I think the design stuff, that ethic, is nice, but he um, is not customer centric. He, um, you know, there's a lot of secrecy. I think unnecessarily. And you know, there's a whole lot of experiences. I know I use all their products, which are awful. Um, that would really <laughs> bug me. It does bug me. So, um, but I do like you know. The, but you take you take a bits and pieces from everybody. You know, no one asks us for um, you know being able to do their bank rec in the bed and their mobile phone. But that's how smart business owners yeah. do their books now. So you have to get the balance right between listening to customers and also delivering new things that you know that they're going to love, yeah. and that's really exciting. Okay, I got, I got a couple more questions, and then we'll we'll throw to. Uh the crowd, so I hope you're ready with some uh, some, some Q and A. Uh, so you're here for ZeroCon. Do you want to tell us about that and what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so so we do these um, conferences each year. Don't tweet this, but I kind of started out as a bit of a joke, really. We sort of thought, well, we'll get all of our partners in, and uh, about three or four days, we said, um, I said, let's do some um, awards, print some certificates, make them really nice though, and put them in frames. And uh, so the first ZeroCon, we had about twenty partners. And we had the Zero Awards. And, and we'd given these awards out. People were crying and getting photos taken. Um, I bet it's all over there, LinkedIn yeah. profiles. And, and, then, and then in the second, second year of ZeroCon, probably our third year in, we did it in Taupo. We had a few Australians there, actually. And uh, I think we had 220 people there. And, and you, we you know, had a day of conferences and events. And then we had this beautiful dinner, because accountants haven't had a lot of love before. Um, and so, so, we, um, so, so we do this thing at... It was like a wedding walking in. It was flasher than my wedding. And wow, this is nice. It was chandeliers and candles. And uh, you know, had a really nice dinner, really good speeches. And then um, we had the awards night. And Dave Jessup, who won our, our, our sort of second ZeroCon award, he gets something and goes, I've been wanting to win this for five years. <laughs> so we, so the kind of thing was set. So, it's, um, uh, so we do lots of roadshows and events, but ZeroCon's where our accounting partners pay to fly and pay to, to come in and see us. And it's a really good test every year. I think we've got 1,800 people coming this year. The first one we did with Chris was 200. So it's a great barometer of how we're doing, that they'll invest each year and go forward. So it's for us, it's not really rah-rah and zero. We create the environment, and that's actually about taking accounts and bookkeepers on a journey to becoming trusted advisors. And we've become this, this pendulum's gone from a, um, you know, a boring industry to something that's hugely fun. Um, and then we have uh, the Zero Band, which um, Chris put together, which has become this legendary thing. We've got 23 musicians through our channel vying to get on stage. We had a horn section last year. Wow. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, are you the lead singer? No. Yeah, I can play the theme to Bonanza on my nose, and that's about it. Really? Can no, you do that now? Chris is amazing. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, Chris is amazing. I, I, I think it's cool. And like to... The bonding you get where you see your, your workmates and your um, peers up there just rocking it on stage is unbelievable. Does it help if they have some beer? Uh, yeah, everyone says a lot of beer. Yeah, right, yeah. good. <laughs> I mean, last year we had dodgems. Uh, I don't know what we're having this year. I'm being too scared to look. Yeah, surprise. Yeah, it's like uh, sumo suits. Yeah, and then, and, then, and then the other thing about it is it's, uh, again, the, the has this trade show, which, again, isn't about us. It's about all of our um, add-on partners. We have 80 add-on partners that have invested to be there. And, like, they're now outdoing themselves. We had gelato stands last year. Yeah. We've got mascots. <laughs> Great. Um, the mascots okay. fight with each other. <laughs> Play fighting. 
well, I don't know what they were doing. There was a lot of I look forward to vigorous the, movement. The, the tweets and that. All right, let, let's draw to the, 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 the crowd for some questions. Uh, are we going to have we got some mics? mics yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll probably. Anyone here called Mike? Yeah, one over here, Philip. Philip. Is it Philip or Philip? Oh, hang on. Oh, no. You've got to make sure you push the button, Jody, until it's green. Yeah, push the button. There we go. Um, I have a thought from Blue Dot. Um, just wanted to get your opinion on uh, employee option pools in the Australian and New Zealand environment and does Zero use them to motivate staff and, and promote that feeling of buying for the future of the company? Yeah, so we've done that from day one. It was a very natural thing to do. The first thing we did actually is we made we gave no free shares. So when we started the company, we got everyone to put money in. So all of the founding staff put money in right at the very beginning. Um, and then as we um, got a bit bigger and uh, once we did our IPO, um, so there was no free shares before the IPO. Everyone put their money in, which was great buy-in. can't believe we got away with that. Um, and then, um, but it was a really good thing to do. It was a good discipline to get in. So it's like, you know, pony up. And as the founder, that's quite an interesting thing because you can, um, uh, it actually uh, creates a whole lot of value, creates a whole lot of shareholders as well, which is good. Um, and then we've, we've done an employee share ownership plan from day one, we want everyone to be a, um, a shareholder. Um, and then as you get into the US, though, there's RSUs and all this really complicated stuff. Um, what we did, the original one, was like um, like a loan, where we, um, you know, for all the tax reasons, it, it gets structured as a loan and all that sort of stuff, and pay a bonus, pay off the loan. Um, it's getting much harder now in um, with the US with RSUs and options. So it's a continuous uh, source of pain. Um, getting getting all that um, comp, but the, in theory, everyone gets shares. Hopefully, there's an accounting package that simplifies it. Though. Uh, there's an option for someone. Someone yeah. to do that. Uh, in the middle over here, this young man. <laughs> we can Thank see you. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rob, thanks for that. Look, as someone who used Mile, then I think Reckon, and now Zero. And I had to force our bookkeeper to take on zero. And when she did it, suddenly she didn't have as much to do. And it's been quite a a journey for her, I think, as she's learned that she can be more than just someone who does a whole lot of manual accounting. And so that started me thinking, how important, from your perspective, is the technology versus the business model? Because how did you scale? You couldn't have scaled without bringing your partners along with you. Yeah, so a whole lot of good stuff there. So, um, first of all, thank you. And um, uh, it's really interesting how people are so conservative. They get worried about if they were doing low-value work, that might go away. So we do a lot of education about this new, better world and and do a lot of coaching. In fact, that's what Xerocon's all about, is helping um, our bookies and accountants uh, transform their practices. Because, you know, what we say is, look, if we don't disrupt compliance, someone else will. And what we want to do is actually give you the tools because if you help small businesses, then they're going to, you know, they're going to, that's how we deal with youth employment. That's how, um, you know, it's how we get better schools and hospitals at scale is making small businesses better. It's the only sector at scale that can actually change the game. And it's accountants and bookkeepers that do it. So we invest in tools that make their life better, trying to get rid of uh, compliance so they can actually add value. One thing that, um, actually Trent and I were doing a bookkeeper session at last year's ZeroCon in Sydney, and you know we kind of shoot from the hip a little bit, so we've winged this idea. We looked at, we did a survey, and uh, the average income from a bookkeeper was 50 grand. So I was on stage, and I said, we should double that. 
you know, that'd be really easy. So, um, so we actually hatched this plan. We hired um, a head of bookkeeping out of our community, and we just ran a, ran a program called Grow Your Practice, which was a webinar series. And on the wrap-up, I think we had 200 people on the call um, last week. And the average across everybody, income that we increased was 37% already. And I said, we're not going to stop until we get to 100%. Some people, 400%. Some stories were like um, people in their 50s that had been uh, displaced, didn't have a career, have started their own business in zero bookkeepers and turning over 200 grand already. So um, that whole journey of, um, of the, the people side and giving them the tools to um, build their businesses is what we're all about. And uh, the other kind of important thing hidden there is accounting is really the only small business app with a natural channel. So you can have these great ideas, but you can't afford to go and sell each one. Um, so when you think about doing a startup, um, there's a few things I think in the zero add-on ecosystem, where we've got half a million customers and 20,000 accountants, there's already a channel there that you can build an application on and not have to do a whole lot of sales and marketing. You'd be very smart selling to our base. So I think finding large ecosystems that you can add on to takes a whole lot of cost out of your business. But I also think if you're really interested in the cloud and SaaS, the enterprise market, like I did with Aftermail, has interesting characteristics because you get uh, more lumpier upfront revenue but you can actually, the heroics of the founder will help get to your first couple of million in sales. So again, that's um, quite a nice place to start if you're a software entrepreneur. Doing small business is really expensive. Okay, thanks for the question. Yeah, uh, behind the hipster. Good everyone. Luke Swan with the Cloud. You talked a bit about your previous experience before Zero a couple of businesses you'd started and exited from. Uh, can you talk more about your personal journey of going from startup CEO of Zero and progressing through to global growth-focused CEO um, on a much larger scale than what you'd previously been through and what that personal journey was for you to, to educate yourself to, to take a business globally and, and scale it? Sure. So it's it's um, like no one's more surprised that I'm still the guy at the front. Uh, um, you know, when we, I mean, the longest business I'd done was four years, and we're eight years in. So no one thought I'd have the attention span. And also because you've done, you've sold a few businesses, everyone thinks, oh, you're going to build this up and sell it. Well, once you've actually hit some of those goals, you actually want to do something which is purposeful, and you don't want to be on. You know, we've brought three companies, brought four companies. That's really cool. Um, and I think you know, it goes back to what I said before, because I was doing the IPO. Um, right from the beginning, I wasn't, I mean, I was in the business, I was there every day, but I was focused on that while others were just getting on with it. So I think hiring great people um, has been the secret, and that's allowed me to be focused and being very aware of what you can't do. So there's a whole lot of stuff I'm the worst person in the world at, but between our team, we've got the dynamics to cover that sort of stuff. So it allows me to kind of wave my arms around and, and do those sort of things. Um, so I spend a, you know, I mean, you know, I actually don't come to Australia much because Chris is doing a great job. And if I appear in the media, I'm just taking, people want more of me, where it actually is all about Chris, that's scalable. And Chris now has his team that's sort of, you know, building their own brand and that as well, which again is scalable. Um, you know, doing drive-by shootings um, around the world is, gets really tiring really quickly and it doesn't scale. And that's an actual issue with doing a US business because it's so founder-centric. Um, and this is, I think, you know, when you're building business out of the US, you have to think much more um, sort of global and, and building scale. What I spend a lot of my time doing is um, the big picture 
um, strategy and just urgency, trying to ensure we don't engineer nimbleness out of the business. Um, but you know, the people running the business are far more capable of actually operating that growth phase. So my job is to make sure we've got plenty of money and resources. And you know, if I just see dumb things, I kind of call them out. But I don't really do any kind of operating stuff. Uh, just an extension to that, Rob. I mean, like, we, we haven't really touched on this, but you said it when we chatted earlier. You said you ain't seen nothing yet. So where is zero in five years? Um, well, well, somebody must create the Facebook-sized company in the small business space. You know, the biggest market in the world is all consumers. No one likes paying for anything. And you've seen $100 billion companies in that off advertising. So small businesses do pay for things, and there's hundreds of millions of them. So we think there's a $100 billion company in here somewhere. No one else has raised any real money. The incumbents were accelerating past, so might as well be us. So we hope that we'll be um, you know, a globally important business that's um, known for doing good, known for uh, you know, champions, you know, the whole small business space, and you know, which does lead to better schools and hospitals. So we want to be an be a ethical, global... Um, game-changing business that you know that just delivers cool shit to people. Well, we can't accuse you of not being ambitious. That's awesome. Um, any other questions? Yeah, in the middle here, we got this dude. Hey, Rob, you... Oh, sorry, we'll go there and then here. Yep, you go. Oh, shit, that was me. Same to drinking problem. Scottish. Building a massive global presence, and we're seeing now an increase number of unicorns. And some very significant market valuations coming in um, from all sorts of businesses. You guys have been a beneficiary of a very significant share price as well. Do you think there's a, a reseeding of expectations around fundamental valuations? And uh, are we seeing you know, effectively a new benchmark for what you think is reasonable valuations of tech clients compared to traditional valuations on the back of the yeah, Yeah, so I've been doing this for eight years now, so share price doesn't matter. Um, you know, we were at like $18, $18 at the moment. We've been $45. Bucks. Um, unicorns are easy now in Australia because the exchange rate's gone down. That's good. Someone said that to us today in the marina. Um, it doesn't matter. Like, what matters is when you... Like, the, the weird thing about being a public company, I mean, we have um, everything we've said we've done. We haven't really stuffed up too much. In fact, if anything, any little thing goes wrong, people blow it out, out, out because it generates column inches because we've done so well. So um, if you go and look at the Google history of us, like, fuck, that's a disaster. But, you know, we just keep delivering. We, you know, did, um, did 80% growth rate last year, passed the US 100 million annualised revenue, all that good stuff. Um, and it really doesn't matter uh, until you, when you go and take money. So we've used um, the ability to do a private placement. Lisa, about time. Jesus. I tried to warm them up with jokes. Okay, can you start now? <laughs> Go. Yeah, so, um, so we, um, uh, you know, we, we, we put another 100 million US in the tin. So we don't care what happens to the share price. I mean, it might be personally uncomfortable as it's moving around, but it goes up when we haven't deserved it to go up, and it goes down off no information and really low volumes. So I think people get hung up on valuation. If it's a good business, you'll raise enough. People will give you enough capital. There's plenty of money there to go in and build an even larger business, um, and they'll back great entrepreneurs. Um, there's a shortage of great entrepreneurs. So um, it's a real kind of sideshow being public, and it's just bizarre. It's weird, and it's, ugh, it's yucky. But um, so, Just quickly on that, like what percentage of your time is spent on compliance and share market stuff? None. 
I don't spend any time on that. We hire people to do that. And um, uh, I mean, I'll do an annual meeting. That's a big sales pitch anyway, so I'm going to do it anyway. It's good fun. I get to talk about myself right now. I thought you were up in Sydney today talking to analysts. No, talk, not to analysts, to just journos, which is about our PR strategy. Okay. And, um, you know, it's, it's um, like, a, you, know, uh, you know, if a journo phones you up, and you get something in the AFR, if we were spending money on advertising, that would cost 25 grand. So I, I you know, any time a journal falls back, wow, yeah, I'm thinking I'm saving money here. I don't care what they write. <laughs> you know, you'd like it to be nice, but actually they're always looking for the hook. And, um, you know, if you read the stuff, we're really arrogant and, you know, we've been mean to MYOB and all this sort of stuff. I just answer, answer the question. Right. You know, we don't put any slant on it. Um, and, uh, but, you know, people will grab a quote because that's their job. Their job is to drive online advertising and drive page views. My job is to uh, keep our marketing costs under control and get the zero brand in as front of as many people as we can. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we're all over that stuff. So you're CEO and head of marketing. I mean, like, I think you get twenty three thousand Twitter oh, followers. We're not, we're not doing anyone's performance review here, are we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I we had a question here. Hello, Ryan. Um, thanks for coming up, by the way. Um, one of the things that interested me, having been through a, a few small companies that have navigated successfully or unsuccessfully those growth inflection points, was your comment about how you tweak the values and the culture um, as the company grew. Can you give us maybe some headlines of what were the, the, those tweaks that you made as the company matured to help the culture and values fit the challenges of the business uh, Yeah, so the example I mentioned was the ownership value, which was a new one that we added. So that was about taking ownership. And um, we did a developers conference in Wellington. Um, we flew most of our developers around the world. And it was like 300 people in the room. It's like bigger than most industry conferences. It's like, holy shit, he paid for this. Um, but, um, but the first thing was about the ownership value. I had That was an unconference. So the staff themselves created the agenda for the conference. And the first thing was about ownership. Because ownership isn't just something that I want to happen, it's something everyone in the business wants to happen. So, um, so by making that a key value, I was so proud that internally it was something that, um, that everyone takes seriously. And I think that's one of the keys as you scale. I mean, it's, you, know, you don't have to worry about the stuff when you've got 20 people because you can see what's going on. But as you get bigger, you want to empower people smarter than yourselves to do cool stuff. And, um, and that requires you know, clear ownership. So what I've got to do is make sure that... Um, that we fly a kind of our strategy, because I'm not saying I'm smarter than anyone else, I'm saying this is what we think we're doing, and then smart people go, yeah, that's sort of right, but actually, have you thought about this? Well, actually, no, I haven't. So we, we, you know, we, we have this open dialogue. So I think you know, we have a culture where, hopefully it's more so now, this is a hard thing, as you, as you get a bit of profile, is that staff, you know, they don't, you know, they're nervous about speaking up, so we like, talk, talk, talk. And you know, whenever new people come, it's like, tell us what you're doing in Yammer and ask questions and, and do those things. So creating that environment where people can call out stuff. And our, our cult, you know, culture goes like this. Like we probably, 18 months ago, we had some really negative stuff that we had to go and deal with. You know? Often it may just be a few people that are, when you're growing so quickly, you, you know, people who were great last year may not be so great this year. And so that's a really hard thing. Yeah. Uh, Jody, how are we doing in time? <coughs> Five minutes, right? We've got time for a couple more questions. Uh, well, there's one, there's, there's a couple back in the middle here. So, why don't we take this young man here and then? Uh, in fact, let's go with the, the, the woman, for, the, the lady first. I don't want to say girl, I'll get in trouble. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. And uh, I wonder, because the, the 
the way we are doing business is changing quite quickly, and so uh, what are you expecting the, in three or five years, and what kind of for like a first month business uh, runner or using Xerox or as a bookkeeper, what kind of changes you are seeing in three or five years, or what kind of product changes? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the mega trends I'm seeing is absolute globalization. That's super important for people not in the US because it's not as clear. So like we've seen how Uber's transformed taxi industry, right? Everywhere. You know, Hong Kong, Wellington last night, Sydney today, Melbourne today, been in, you know, four in a week, seven yeah, days. It's been not in Glasgow yet. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah three bricks at them or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so so there's that and then we've seen um, I don't know what's like here, but Netflix like everyone in New Zealand's got US Netflix, so we've completely bypassed Sky. So that's you know that's global TV. WhatsApp and Viber, global telco. You know we just signed up KPMG in Singapore, BDO South Africa. We haven't even been there. So um, so we've seen these globalisation of platforms, which is awesome because suddenly the playing field for a business originated anywhere is huge. So you have to be thinking global. And it's really interesting. Like MYB, you know, because their motivations are they want to get their money out. The investors want to get their money out. So they're telling a story of. Um, of hey no we're focused on New Zealand and Australia and that's all it's like that's crazy stuff you know the partnerships we'll announce at Xerocon are global partners that only are working with us in Australia because we've got more customers here than anyone else but these are global partnerships you don't have time to do regional ones so so globalisation is an absolute trend and what an awesome opportunity for us that aren't you know that are in this this, this sort of edge of the Pacific um, from a technology point of view I think we're in the first generation of the cloud. So the first bit was getting all the data. So we processed, this is fucking nuts, we processed $300 billion of transactions last year. $300 billion. We saw of New Zealand, we got 25% of all businesses. A quarter of all businesses are on zero. We saw $60 billion of our $210 billion of GDP. So the data we have has never existed before. Um, so with all that data, you know, why, why is anyone even doing a bank reconciliation? We know how you coded that stuff last month. It's probably the same. We can even crowdsource amongst all of the customers. We know all the merchants. So I think um, machine learning, and not super complicated, that'll come, but basic machine learning, now that you've got data in the cloud and the ability to crowdsource patterns amongst that large base, we're going to see this massive increase in automation. So what we're first generation was getting data out of the desktop, still doing you know nice applications with mobiles, but you're kind of still doing all the work. When the servers start doing it for you, so we're now moving our applications from things that happen when a browser window opens and you click a button to as soon as the transaction, as soon as we get a bank feed, let's start processing that bank feed now because we know how you're going to code it. So I think um, machine learning... Um, uh, making that mainstream is what's is going to be huge over the next two to three years. So our view is in five years, you don't do accounting, you open up your iPad or iGlass, whatever it is, whatever the form factor of the day is, and you'll just be told what happened overnight. Okay, last question. Guy, guy in the middle. Oh, yeah, you got the microphone. I couldn't see that. Good job. Uh, thanks for coming uh, zero sales and marketing spend is by some accounts five times better than traditional SaaS companies. Uh, and while looking at some of your financials, it seems that uh, your sales channel partners in the accountants and the uh, bookkeepers are partly due to business. Uh, uh, could you talk about the origin of this sales and go-to-market strategy 
how it was developed and uh, the importance of distribution in your success? Yes, that's an awesome question. Um, everyone sitting comfortably for a few hours. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, so, 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 like I said before, it's between you and the bar. Yeah, small small business is the only. Uh, you know, uh, when you think about small business, only accounting has a natural channel. So, you know, Salesforce really hasn't sold much into small business because you can't go and sell everyone. You can't afford to. So, most people um, uh, going into the small business market say they're going for small and medium businesses, and then end up drifting up market because if you're going to go to all the effort of selling a hundred grand deal, you might as well sell them a million dollar deal. So um, I think we worked out quite quickly that um, if we could build uh, accountant tools and, um, and each accountant, each accountant has 300 customers, we could actually afford to go and spend time with them. So we actually run an enterprise sales model to get accountants on board and then, um, you know, it's expensive at the beginning, the first 20, 50 customers. We have a partnering program which pulls them through, they get better benefits, we give them more stuff and, um, and then there was a nice technology disruption where the incumbents were double dipping. They were selling software to small businesses and also selling software to um, accountants. Once you get them all on the cloud, we started building the accountant side tools. So we could say, oh, we could charge you 300 bucks for your practice management software or give us 20 customers and it's free. It's free! But we end up getting more money. We get 1000 bucks. So, um, so the dynamics of having accountants and bookkeepers meant that we've had this channel and that's allowed us to get really low um, uh, cost of acquisition. So it sort of pops around a bit. Um, best practices, cost of acquisition of being uh, less than 12 months of revenue. You know, we're in Australia, you guys are seven months sometimes? Seven point nine. Seven, no, treat those numbers. It's probably wrong, you just said it with a deep voice, so it sounds like <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah, so that, that's best in class. In fact, you'd even say, spend more. I didn't say that. But, um, you know, up to like a year, you know, you would ask, some people would say, actually, you guys should be spending more on... Um, acquisition. And the interesting thing about SaaS is you have to take the accounting charge of all of your sales and marketing that's expensed in the first year, though our lifetime value is like seven years. So it's they're great models. So if you've got, the, like we added, I can't remember what we spent last year, um, uh, maybe 200 million, but we added, um, we're up to now 800 million of future margin off those customers. So if you've got the cash, you're going to keep investing and building customers. Is a customer at the end user, like the small business owner, or yes. an accountant as a referral? Well, they're both, but the um, the accountant's a referral source, and they're sort of a customer, we call them partners, but it's the end customers we count. So both the accountant and us are working on the end customer. Okay, well, I think we have come to the end of the, the night, so let's give Rod a massive round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.